Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, the 20th of September, 2022. We've just did a show earlier this morning with Karen Franklin and Keon West, co-authors of a book called Skewed, Decoding Media Bias. And they have all sorts of critical analyses of how media is biased, how it's designed to undermine women, undermine people of color and different kinds of sexualities. Some of it's true, although some of this stuff I personally think can get a bit repetitive. What was interesting about the conversation is they cited all sorts of examples of media bias, but the one bit of media that they didn't suggest was biased was Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is one of those shows, perhaps like the character itself or himself, that is universally loved. No one criticizes Ted Lasso. He seems to have uh, reached a soft spot, a hidden spot in the culture, and is taking advantage of it. In fact, all the headlines about Ted Lasso are people impatient for the third season. Apparently, uh, the franchise, the, uh, the series is so popular that the media company producing it is requiring its entire cast to dedicate themselves entirely. Why all this stuff about Ted Lasso, you might ask? Well, we are sort of talking about Lasso today. Uh, my guest is uh, John Bacon, and he has a new book out. It's called Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And the marketing uh, material suggests that it's where Ted Lasso meets the Mighty Ducks. Um, John is joining us from his home in Ann Arbor. John, uh, welcome. Um, before we get to Let Them Lead, what is it in your view about Ted Lasso that makes him such a, a universally beloved fictional character and the show so successful on television? Well, I think it's sort of the Vince Lombardi character on its head, basically. He's the opposite of, of a dictator. He's always positive, even when the results are negative. Um, he clearly knows how to connect with his people. And one of my mentors told me, they will care how much you know. I'm sorry, they'll know how much you care before they care how much you know. And Lasso is that kind of guy. So uh, he's just a lot of fun to be around. You expect him to fail miserably, and of course he is not. At least not, uh, not ultimately. But uh, we'll see about season three, naturally. But um, I think the reason is that he's, the, he's the, anti, the anti-usual stereotypical coach that we see on TV. So do you think, John, that our culture broadly is ready for a a radical revision on, on what it takes to lead on the idea of leadership. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, pretty much. And I think we're getting that whether we like it or not, because the old way, do as I say, worked on my generation. I think we're only a few years off, uh, Andrew. So we're about the same year. When our parents told us to do something, we just did it as a rule. And same with our teachers and our coaches. Uh, that no longer works. Now, the flip side we're trying now is, of course, is you see it in Silicon Valley where you are naturally. You know, casual Fridays and Taco Tuesdays and every other cool thing. And people like that, but you don't necessarily get a better performance out of them. Or more I'm not sure. I mean, you're, you're, you're a sports guy, John, and we're going to get to the book. But we did a show a few months ago with Ian Connor, a popular sports yeah. writer on Coach K. Um, he seems 
a fairly typical leader and he's had a great deal of success. I mean, you can still have the Coach K's of the world, although maybe Coach K doesn't fall into the traditional leadership category for sport. Yeah, in some ways. And uh, he also does some things that are Ted Lasso-like. He does a pretty good job, I think, of listening to his players. Coach K does. Flip side is, you know, college basketball coach got a lot more power than the average boss has in the workplace. And certainly you have even far more power than the average NBA coach because they're getting paid more than you are. Uh, at his level, of course, he's getting $10 million a year and his athletes until recently weren't paid at all. So there's a definite power disparity there that most of us will not get when you're leading anything. So enough, uh, enough Coach K, enough Ted Lasso. Let's deal with the subject of your book, which is, in a sense, yourself. Let them lead unexpected lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team. Tell me about the book. Um, it's, it's, it's not fiction. It's nonfiction. So it's a true story. Yeah. And the guy you quoted earlier is Dan Shaughnessy, the famous columnist of the Boston Globe. And Good morning, yeah, Mr. Red Sox. When I lived in uh, That's right. Cambridge, I used to listen, uh, read him all the time about the Red Sox. That's when they were losers. He was better when they were losing, I think. Uh, most of us are as in sports writing, by the way. It's, it's, it, the, the best uh, restaurant reviews are the horrible ones, naturally. So it uh, tends to be the case. So, yes, that's your time out in North e Northeastern and all that and Tufts. But anyway, uh, in fact, one of my players ended up being a captain at Tufts, by the way. But uh, he's a good story there. But anyway, um, that was probably a punishment if, you're, uh, if you have to do sports at Tufts, right? <laughs> well, I will say the team was not very good, but he had a good experience, and he has the MVP and all that and the captain, so that was, worked out fine for him. So, so the basic story, John, is that um, is, is, is a real-life lasso experience. Is that fair? At That's America's exactly. worst high school hockey team. Tell me about this team. Where was it? Sure. Well, out of 1,256 teams ranked in 2000, Ann Arbor Huron High School, my alma mater, home of the River Rats. I'm not making that up, Andrew. That's our actual mascot, the only ones in the country. We ranked dead last out of 1,256 teams, 0, 22, and 3. Uh, a few non-sports fans out there, the 0 is where the wins go. So we had 0 wins, 22 losses, and 3 ties. We had not won a league game in 3 years. And who did they hire to coach them? Of course, yours truly who happens to be, Andrew, the worst player in school history, and that is not false modesty. I can prove this empirically. I still hold the records for the most games in a year in uniform, 86. I played in all of them for three years, which back then it's all we had for high school, 10 through 12. But the fewest goals, zero, and I played forward, Andrew, so that's not very good. So worst player in school history, joins the worst team in America. There's your Ted Lasso story. And, and what's the personal word? Did you have any kids on the team? Did you have relatives, friend, uh, kids of friends? None of that, um, which probably helped. Um, I was 35 years old at the time, still single. I just got married at 49. How about that? Late starter with a kid now, but uh, all Congratulations. Thank you very much. Late starter there, but uh but anyway, um, I'd been an assistant coach uh, years earlier, about five years earlier. So I knew some of the families and they knew me a little bit. But for the most part, we we're starting cold. And I have to say, when I was picked, uh, initially, the vote was 42 against me with uh, the athletic director, my old uh, algebra teacher, who's a friend of mine. She voted for the stranger. The incoming captain voted for the other guy. The parents voted for the other guy. So uh, but we flipped one of the votes. AD changed her vote. And 3-3, three, three, tiebreaker I won because I went to Huron. So uh, they were not very happy about me being named the coach either. That is also, of course, very Ted Lasso-esque. So 
There when is your you, uh, problem. Right. So, 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 John, you're a, a sports writer. So you, you came into this. I mean, it's not a job. You, you weren't being, it wasn't a full-time thing, right? No, you get paid 5,000 bucks for a four-month season. And uh, you get paid nothing for the off-season, which you kind of have to do to turn them around. So, Right. So, uh, so for you, this was a mix between an experiment and a hobby and something you like to do. Um, what, what mental equipment were you bringing to the job that you think allowed you to become a kind of real life Ted Lasso? Uh, I'd say two things. One, uh, thick skin from all the years being a sports writer and all that, uh, which you better have, of course. And two, uh, I knew how to get help. I knew what I didn't know. And that is a very lasso thing to do. Um, Warren Buffett said, if you think you're the smartest guy in the room, get a better room. And my goal is to be the dumbest guy <laughs> in the coaching staff. And I greatly exceeded my expectations. I was by far the dumbest guy in the coaching staff. I was surrounded by guys who played in Sweden and played for the University of Michigan. And they're all better players, much better players than I was. So I was surrounded by very, very good help. And tell me about the, the age group of the kids. Were these all seniors? No, they're ninth grade through 12th grade uh, in high school hockey in the United States. Uh, there's no real JV or freshman team that you would have with a baseball or a basketball team. Uh, the sport is too unusual. So we had 14-year-old kids who had to be teammates with 18-year-old guys who were shaving and about to go to Afghanistan, as one of my players did. So turning those guys into a team is a, is a bit of a trick. But you did, John. You turned them into a team, and they went from America's worst high school hockey team, maybe not to their best, but certainly a very credible team. Is that fair? Yeah, we went from 0-22-3 to 16-9-2 in two years, second-best team in school history, to 17-4-5 our third year. We were ranked 53 in the nation, so we had passed 97% of the country in three years. And I did not cut any of the players from the 0-22-3 team. Some of those guys were around for three or four years of the experience. So that's the Mighty Ducks. That's where Mighty Ducks meets um, Lasso. Do you think the story is more like Mighty Ducks or more like Lasso, or is it really a combination of the two? Really the combination. Uh, of course, in Lasso, the focus is on the coach, and in this book, it's more on the players, of course. Um, in fact, I finished uh, my draft of it anyway, of my screenplay, with uh, Jim Bernstein. He did Mighty Ducks 3, actually. So uh, we're about done with that, and we're getting some interest from Hollywood, so we'll see where that goes. But uh, – but it has that potential. This is a book, John, not about sport, but about leadership. Uh, the, the subtitle is Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. What did you learn about leadership and what are you trying to teach in the book? I'd say three things in a nutshell to boil it all down. One is the temptation now with workers today and all this stuff and everyone's complaining about them is to lower the bars, to make it easier and softer, and that's the exact wrong thing to do. The advice I got from my mentor, Al Clark of Culver Academies in Indiana, middle of nowhere, who won the most games of any high school coach in America with 1,017 wins. Quiet guy, math department chairman, Phi Beta Kappa kind of guy. This is very unusual for a high school hockey coach, to say the least. Uh, he said, you've got to make it special to play for Huron. That's your first job. And I made a crack. I said, well, we're already the worst in America. That's pretty special. And he ignored that and he said, no, the best way to make it special is to make it hard. And I think right now in corporate America, we're doing the exact opposite. But if you look at the Navy SEALs that take 6% of those who apply or the Peace Corps that take one out of six who apply, and those, those jobs both pay very little and they're incredibly hard. Uh, how can they be so picky? They don't 
whine or deny that it's hard. Uh, they brag about it. And that's they're selling the mission, not the salaries. So that's the first thing is don't lower the bar. Second uh, thing. Matt, before we get to the second, you yeah. mentioned um, the SEALs. I have a good friend who's a SEAL, remarkable characters. They're, of course, the sort of the elite of the Marines. Um, are you, in a way, in the book, reminding people of the virtues of traditional military valor? Absolutely. It's, it's kind of a weird contrast. On the one hand, we've got uh, military valor is the kind of first step that here's the bar is going to be incredibly high. And as my captain once said, Mike Henry, who voted against me at first, but then we became very close and we're still great friends. He said to one of the players, hey, you play for Huron and it's harder over here. And once I heard Mike say that, I knew they were off and running. So the first part is kind of a Navy SEALs Peace Corps approach. Um, but then you get into Kumbaya after that. So it's a very unusual mix. We've done lots and lots of shows, John, about um, leadership. We even did one with a, a Harvard uh, professor, Barbara Kellerman, about why most books about leadership are a scam. Seems to be as most of the books about leadership want to do away with the idea of leadership itself. Richard Winters, who's a executive at the Mayo Clinic, was on the show suggesting that. Uh, certainly Bill George, who also teaches at Harvard, suggests that leaders need to get off social media. I assume you weren't on social media very much. Uh, and then, of course, is the female issue. Talk about the second and third characteristics before we get to gender and to the, the architecture, the hierarchies of leadership. What is right and what's wrong in terms of bringing out the best leaders? Sure. I disagree strongly with the idea that you need to get rid of leadership itself. Uh, you still need somebody driving the bus, and that guy's got to take the blame if they lose and give away the credit if they win. So in that sense, I'm kind of halfway where that guy is, but the other half you got to keep. So the second thing, of course, is uh, gaining their trust, um, and you do that in part through layers of leadership. On our team, we had a joke that uh, leading by example is clearly important, and if you don't do that, you're not going to be followed, and you shouldn't be followed, um, in my opinion. But on our team, we had, the joke was, We've got a name for those who lead by example. They're called sophomores. So all that means is you know your job and you can do your job. By your junior year on our team, we expect you to know your job, do your job, know everyone else's job too. And by your senior year, know your job, do your job, know everyone else's job too, and help them do their jobs better. If it's you versus them, you lose. There can be more of them than you, even if your division is five people. So it's got to be layers of leadership, not just from you. And it's just from you, they get tired of that and you get tired of yelling it. So that's not going to work. So... Second big thing I would say is layers of leadership that requires listening, listening before you lead. And a great line from Colin Powell is the day you quit listening to your players' problems is the day you quit being their leader. So while on the one hand, I'm advocating a very uh, uncompromising approach. On the other hand, it's also the second phase is, I would dare say, it, a bit touchy-feely. Uh, but if you don't connect with them, they're not going to follow you. Were you, in a sense, in terms of convincing and confronting was the uh, was it parents who were the issue in, in, in sense or culture rather than the boys themselves? Did you have parents complaining in any way about your 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 tactics, your behavior? There's some of that. Uh, look, man, if you're the worst team in America, you probably have every problem you can name. And we had most of them, although the team, thanks to the previous year's team with Brian Skyless and other great leaders, uh, was not divisive, surprisingly. But uh, no. We had some butt-ins with the parents early on as to why we're working so hard. I mean, parents um, are incredible. I mean, my experience as a parent is parents, when it comes to kids' sports, are incredibly annoying. they way <laughs> too over-involved. I'm not sure if it 
whether that's the case in Michigan. It certainly is in Northern California. Uh, we're not that far apart as far as that goes. And I've, I got friends who are teaching out there, of course, in Menlo and elsewhere. So I know, I know what you're talking about. What's that the problem not... with parents? Why, why are they on the field with the kids? What's, what can't they get lives Probably. themselves? First parent meeting I've got the first day of practice, uh, Monday night, two hour meeting. We go over everything. I say, look, you can talk to me about anything you want to talk to me about. Uh, the grades, you know, a sick grandparent, uh, you know, a girlfriend problem, whatever you think is important for me to know about, by all means, let me know, except for two things, playing time and strategy. For strategy, I know Red Berenson, who coaches at the University of Michigan. I know Scotty Bowman, who coaches the Detroit Red Wings. I've got very good sources. Herb Brooks, who coached the 1980 Olympic team. I will not be talking to you guys about strategy and playing time especially because it's zero sum. And if you're lobbying for your kid to get more playing time, then it's going to come out of that kid's pocket. So that's not fair to anybody. So be assured, if any parent is talking to me off to the side in the lobby or wherever, uh, they're not lobbying for their kids. It does not work. So in four years, I only got two nasty emails, which I have not forgotten, I have to admit. And even there, you're going to get some. Um, but I got very little of that, in part because I laid on the law early on. And they, they were, by and large, very good parents. John, um... Ted Lasso, of course, is a fictional character, uh, imaginary uh, manager of an English uh, Premier League side. When the Americans get into what they call soccer, especially in the UK, they tend to be very data focused. We did a show um, with Emily Oster, uh, a parenting expert, suggesting that we need to parent with data too. How central was data in um, let them lead in terms of the way in which you led. Do you think that uh, the importance of data is exaggerated or perhaps uh, something that most leaders miss? I think they, I, I am huge on data and we were as a team. Uh, to break down a high school hockey game, we had 15 different stats every night for every player. That's 20 players. So you were the Moneyball guy, John. Absolutely. Moneyball before Moneyball. This is 2000. Uh, and Moneyball has rarely been applied to hockey, but it works. Uh, but I think they don't handle the data very well. We didn't tell the players what to do based on the data. We would crunch it. Pete Ewer, my great assistant coach, who earned his MBA from Michigan while coaching the team, he and I would take all that data compiled by the freshmen from the games and punch it all into a spreadsheet that night, two hours. And so when they walked in the room the next day, all these sheets were around the room. We didn't tell them to go look, to look at the sheet. We didn't tell them what was important. Uh, they go right away themselves, as you would too, of course. And you look up, okay, how did I do? How many? And we had not just goals and assists, which favors, of course, the leading scorers. We had blocked shots. We had hits. We had pancakes. We had knock a guy clean on his butt, face-offs, all kinds of what seemed like obscure data if you're not a hockey fan. Uh, to show you there are many ways. There are 15 ways you can contribute to the team's success. And we need them all. We don't just need scores. We need defensemen. We need goalies. We need people to help out in other ways. And that told them how it works. I was in Santiago, Chile, giving a speech years ago when a professor before me who was very good, uh, she had a very straightforward point and her data proved it. And that is that high achievers love being evaluated and low achievers hate being evaluated. So what do we do? We evaluate constantly and the high achievers love it. And the low achievers either become high achievers or they go somewhere else where being a mediocrity is okay. And uh, we didn't want that. So the data we thought was very, very important we didn't jam it down their throats. We just laid it out there, and they figured it out. John, you've written a number of books, mostly about sports, but also about the military. One of your books, um, 
three and out, a New York Times bestseller about the college uh, football, uh, but also another book, uh, The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War One story. Do you think that writing about sports and writing about war, are they quite similar? They can be. Now, of course, you have to be careful to not take these analogies too far. War is war and a hockey game is a hockey game. They're not the same things, of course, or even close. Uh, but some of the strategies that you use, the military, I mean, people think, oh, you're militaristic and so on. Man, the military these days is actually very good at having ideas bubble up from the bottom. Um, the generals I've met uh, on the speaking tour and so on have been very open minded, smart people. Um, so I think they kind of get a bad rap. So we use some of that and we had some Marines help us out with our workouts, actually. So one of their very powerful ideas in the Marines is you never leave a man behind. And I wanted that culture where everyone felt like they belonged here and everyone else is looking out for them. That sounds like Kumaya, but it's actually from the Marines. The great issue that will, of course, many people be thinking about, particularly in our audience, which I hope is at least half female, is the, the woman question. Done lots of shows also about leading as a woman. I mean, obviously, this was a boys hockey team. Mm. What lessons on leadership, though, do you think um, you provide for not just boys, but also girls, not just for men, but also women. Is there a difference between leading boys and leading girls? There is. And I'm not going to sit here and give you the PCI idea that's all socialization. I don't think it is. And I've coached the boys' high school hockey team, and I've also coached the women's uh, University of Michigan college hockey team. Um, I was an assistant coach for that for several years, and I wrote an essay about it, which you can Google, John U. Bacon, women's hockey. comes right up on Michigan Public Radio. Um, but there are, there are some very important differences and I didn't get them at first, so shame on me, but, um, I learned after about a month or two of coaching the women that confidence was a constant issue. And I was not expecting that. What you so mean with women are, hmm? more than with men, confidence is a bigger issue for women than for men. There's no question. And here's why. Um, I mean, junior high school and everything else beats it out of them. Uh, my friend, I'll, I'm jumping ahead here on your recommendations. My friend Susan Kane wrote the blockbuster Quiet about how to yeah, lead. Yeah, I know. Uh, I've known Susan. Susan went to uh, law school with my uh, first wife, so I've known her a while. There you go. She went to law school with a good buddy of mine, Kenny Kane. So there we go. Um, so a small world, as we say. But uh, no, yeah, there's definitely a difference. And one thing I discovered, I mean, these women at Michigan, they're going to be future lawyers and doctors, and they are now. This is 20 years ago. Um, and they're a very good hockey team. We're a top 10 team. So they had every reason to be confident. And I didn't realize that you have to constantly pump them up individually and as a team. So otherwise, they, don't, they, they, they suffer far more, I think, from imposter syndrome than the men do. Um, so I was always pumping up the women and telling them, you're better than you think you are. And with the boys, you're always saying, you know what? You're not half as good as you think you are. Let's start there and work backwards. Uh, one of the boys came into my locker in my coach's room and said, Coach, why am I on the third line? Because I like you. That's why you're in the third line. You should be in the fourth line. Don't ask twice. Um, so with men, is the opposite. And studies about driving, for example, prove this, that 90% of men think they're above average and like 20% of women think they're above average. And You should meet my wife. Well, uh, there you go. So, John, uh, uh, John. definitely uh, a difference. Well, she thinks she's a good driver. Actually, she is. Um, John, uh, hockey, ice hockey, of course, is a very white game. They play it on a very white surface as well. Do you think that helped? How diverse was the team? I mean, judging from uh, the photo, 
there wasn't a lot of diversity and a lot of African-Americans or Hispanic Americans. It was a, a white boys team. Did that make it easier or different in terms of leading? Uh, I have coached at Huron. We had uh, about 10 years before I coached when I was assistant coach, our two captains were both African-American. So we have had some, not a ton. Um, and likewise, in our team, we had uh, three Korean-American kids and two Japanese-American kids, which is probably does not pass Harvard's definition of diverse. Um, but uh, those are the seniors that year, by the way. And you can see Paul Choi up there. In the yeah, I can see him at the back on the left. Yeah. But I mean, and, you know, Jewish-American so on, but that doesn't count these days either for diversity. Did Jews um, play hockey? I'm sorry? Did Jews play hockey? I didn't think they did. Oh, they do in Ann Arbor. <laughs> I wasn't brought <laughs> up to play hockey. Maybe, maybe I was out of it. Anyway, go on. There we go. Uh, no, in fact, the guy I mentioned earlier, Ross Gimbel, who's one of the stars of the book, I've got him in there a lot. He's the guy who ended up being captain at Tufts. Um, so anyway, um, I would say my class at the University of Michigan is quite diverse. Um, if anything, I think diversity helps, not hurts in a lot of ways. Um, it helps you have a diversity of opinions. That to me is very big. I keep on quoting these hot shots. I didn't mean to, but here I am. Uh, Wrigley, the gum magnate from 80 years ago or 90 years ago, he said, if two guys in business always agree, one of them is unnecessary. And we had a pretty good diversity there of opinions. And the more diverse your group, I think the better. Um, that's how hot but As a up. coach, when you're standing in front of a group of, of young men of different skin colors, perhaps different religions, do you think it offers different sorts of challenges than if most of them are, are, are white suburbanites? It, it's potentially true. Um, but I found teaching at the University of Michigan with 150 students, which is a very diverse crowd, uh, more diverse than America itself, as a rule. Um, it's not that much different. I mean, the papers do at 1140 on, you know, Tuesday, November 10th. That's true for everybody. Um, if somebody needs extra help, you have to be available to it. If somebody needs to bring you a particular problem, you need to be open to that, of course. Um, when we get to certain topics in my class at the University of Michigan on race and gender and sexuality, obviously, uh, you need to be very sensitive and be aware of uh, the different experiences of the people in your room. Uh, but nonetheless, the paper still do at 1140 on, on Tuesday, November 10th. And I think I didn't vote for George W. Bush, but uh, I agree with strongly with this view. And that is that uh, the, the soft racism of low expectations. Um, that's an insult. And what I found is the more I push everybody, the more they respond. So the, the inequality of confidence or the, the differences in confidence between boys and girls uh, you, you, is not reflected in different ethnic or cultural groups amongst boys themselves. You think most boys uh, are be. about the same? No, it can be. Um, I, there's some of that with the Asian American kids. They're smaller than the other guys by, by and large. Um, so there's some aspects that you have to be aware of. Um, I'm talking about confidence, not competence, of course. The confidence was pretty much equal across the board. Um, but the confidence factor is a real one and depends on, you know, look, it might be true with a white guy and a largely African-American basketball team. Uh, confidence, whenever you're the outsider, you feel, you feel some of that. And I have. I've been on the board of the United Negro College Fund here in Washtenaw County and the only white guy at many of the meetings. And I did notice I was far more self-conscious raising my hand than I would have been in another group. So um, these things you have to be aware of. John, uh, in a couple of weeks, I've got Richard Reeves from the Brookings Center, a very distinguished scholar coming on. He has a new book out, Old Boys and Men, 
the subtitle is Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters and What to Do About It. He argues that there's a real cultural crisis amongst young men in America today, and it's one of the central problems in the country. Do you think there's some truth to that? I mean, you obviously are a good leader of men. You succeeded and your story is very uplifting. But are boys and men having a cultural crisis uh, in the early 21st century? You mentioned Trump. He seems to attract a lot of men and boys who are unhappy or angry with their lives. Is there something in Reeves' thesis? What, what did you see on the front lines as a a coach of young uh, hockey players, male hockey well, players. I've read about Professor Reeves' work. I don't know it intimately by any means, um, but I think he's on to something, absolutely. And you look at now, uh, in colleges, the ratio is uh, tilting toward women as far as enrollment goes, and it's tilting more and more that way. I'm on a trustee at Michigan Tech University in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, it's an engineering school largely, uh, and we're up to 30% women, but there was 10% women uh, 30 years ago. So uh, most schools are- it, It's kind of ironic if women are still lacking confidence, but they're the successful ones. Are men falling back on Brigado? Are they falling back on excessive, unrealistic self-confidence in this crisis? How are they manifesting this crisis? I think there's some of that. I think there's a lack of uh, belonging, a lack of mission, a sense of purpose. Uh, what I find with young people today, Andrew, is that things that motivated our generation by and large were power, prestige, pay, all the usual buttons. I find that less effective with this crowd in their 20s and 30s. Uh, a sense of mission, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose. Uh, those are more important by and large. They tend to be more idealistic, idealistic I think, than my generation has been. Um, and I think that if you don't have those things, you probably look for them elsewhere. Uh, what I discovered probably <laughs> too late, sadly, is when I was coaching both the women's team as well as the boys' high school hockey team, as I was, I realized it's after the fact, I was always trying to get the women to play more like the men and the men to play more like the women. In the men's case, I wanted them to pass the puck more, to be less selfish, to be sometimes less aggressive, uh, more team focused, uh, more willing to listen. So in that sense, um, if we just push the usual stereotypical male qualities, you're going to miss something. But how do you bring out those female qualities? Quota, well, and I use that term carefully, because you're the one who brought that up. Sure, I get um, it. Did, did um, you do that in, 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 in Let Them Lead? Is, is that one of the reasons why the, the, the hockey team did so well? I think we did, actually, uh, a few ways. We mentioned the second step, of course, is listening to them and having layers of leadership. The third step is letting them lead, letting them truly take over. My team, the players, high school players, they made our team goals for the year, which we laminated and put on all the walls. We took it very seriously. They spent two or three days coming up with their 10 goals for that year. Um, they decided the, the clothes we wore for home and away games. They decided the discipline of guys who went uh, wayward, basically. They did more of that than I did. I was still responsible for that. Ultimately, I was the adult after all. Um, but a lot of that goes a long way. Team dinners go a long way. Just getting to know them. You cannot motivate anybody you don't know. And if that's a soft skill, that's typically a female skill. When you stick to stereotypes, and so be it. Um, but we had to have those things. Otherwise, you don't care enough about each other, and it's not going to work. To block a shot for a teammate, you got to love each other. And as corny as that sounds, we did. John, final question. How do we get beyond all these dreadful sexual scandals at, uh, mm -hmm. at the college and the school sports level? They seem, I mean, I mean, they're obviously appalling in their own right, but they're also undermining authority. 
how did you see on the front lines that playing out as people read more and more about abusive coaches taking advantage of their authority? Do you think mm -hmm. that undermined leadership in a way? Is it, is it permeated the broader culture? There's no question. Uh, whenever, I mean, it's, you know, it's the boy cry wolf. The boy cries wolf is going to hurt the sheep ultimately, not the wolves. Um, and that's what happens here. The guys who abuse their authority are the ones who undermine the authority that they have. And we've seen, you know, too many examples of that. I would say this, as far as the scandals go, if there is any silver lining is one reason we're finding out more about them from the Catholic church to boy Scouts, to you name it. Um, the, you know, big 10 football programs and all the, all the rest is that people are now willing to come speak out now in a way they were not even 10 years ago, I think. So that is on the positive. Um, but, uh, no, I never bought the idea that some coaches say whatever happens in this locker room stays in this locker room. I wanted a sense that this is our place and you're safe here and so on. But I felt very sketchy about the idea that you can't tell your parents what we're doing here. That's, that's a bad recipe right there. Well, I'll play on your team, John. Uh, <laughs> I take you. Guys, but uh, you certainly inspired me, and it's an inspiring book. Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School co coach, uh, uh, Hockey Team. Uh, maybe you'll have to go into politics next, John. Are you going to run for president? <laughs> Andrew, Lord, help us all. But I, I'm a big fan of yours, by the way. And yes, we need to save democracy about that. I am No journalist needs to be worried about bias in that one. We're either pro-democracy or we're not. Well, important new book, Let Them Lead, by uh, my guest, John U. Bacon. A wonderful, uh, wonderful book and a wonderful story, somewhere between Ted Lasso and Mighty Ducks. No one's going to be offended with this one. What else are you reading, John? Are you reading Susan Cain? She's got a new book out, doesn't she? She does. Bittersweet. Uh, she has once again crushed it. Um, so she's yeah, she is scary for all the rest. She makes every other writer feel inadequate. I mean. <laughs> it works on me, sadly. Uh, and a guy you probably haven't heard of, uh, Ari Weinswig. He started Zingerman's Delicatessen in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan about 40 years ago. It's now 14 different companies, which Beatrice Foods and others would kill to buy. About a $70 million empire. Uh, but he also writes books on the side. And his book, by the way, I recommend uh, A Lapsed Anarchist Approach to Becoming a Better Leader. It's, it's almost exactly what you're talking about, a combination of the two minds, basically.